Coming up today, Facebook takes on the dating game, Cambridge Analytica goes into liquidation, and some potentially positive news about the state of climate change. Maybe. You're listening to episode 367 of the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in technology, science and business. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and I'm joined by Matt Burgess. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. First, to recap some of the stories this week, this is the week when... UK Bank TSB's IT outages entered their second week. For the last fortnight, customers have struggled to access their funds and withdraw money after a database change went wrong. Around 1.9 million of the bank's 5 million customers were affected by the IT problems as it tried to shuffle around 1.3 billion records. This is also the week that WhatsApp created Jan Coombe quit Facebook. Coombe sold WhatsApp to Facebook in 2014, but there's been lots of chat and rumours about disagreements between the messaging app and its new boss since then, mainly around privacy issues and ads. Coombe's co-founder Brian Acton, who left Facebook last year, tweeted hashtag delete Facebook after the Cambridge Analytical scandal, scandal a few months ago. Coombe says he's taking some time off to do things I enjoy outside of technology, such as collecting rare air-cooled Porsches. Somehow I think he'll be all right. And it's also the week where other people in technology said stupid things. So this is this is Tesla. So Tesla this week gave a bizarre earning call when an analyst quizzed uh, Elon Musk over worries that the company had recorded its bigger, biggest ever loss for a quarter. It's had a negative cash flow of $1 billion this quarter. It's worse ever because they've been struggling to produce Model 3s at high volume. Musk wasn't very interested in dealing with those questions, however, saying stuff like, sorry, these questions are so dry, they're killing me. And boring bonehead questions are not cool. Next. Hmm, yeah, not, perhaps not the best way to get on with your investors. Yeah. What did we learn this week? Matt Burgess, have you got an interesting fact for us? I feel like I've actually got an interesting one that I learned not by Googling something or looking on Reddits today, I learned. Oh, wow, um, the anticipation's killing yeah, me. Yeah, it's, it's a big one. Um, so, you know, IP, well, phones have IP ratings. Um, this is the, um, they're called industrial protection, and it's basically the waterproof and dustproofness of a phone. So, um, I don't know if this is the correct number, but hypothetically a google pixel would have a 67 rating an iphone would have a uh, 54 or something like that those aren't the those aren't the correct numbers but that's how it works um, and i've always thought it was 54 or 67 but it turns out that the numbers are actually separate so the first number um and they're normally in around the sixes for this uh, is for dustproofness, and the second number is for water resistance so it's actually like 69 rather than 69 well, I had high expectations after your introduction to that fact. Um, I'm not sure anyone else finds that interesting apart from you, Matt, but thanks think, anyway. Yeah. Dust. Good fact about dust. <laughs> not even just like the ratings of... <laughs> anyway, uh, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn? So I, this links to what I'm going to talk about later. I found that in the next 20 years, to accommodate all the people that are going to move to cities, we'll have to build more homes than already exist in the entirety of Europe. That's only in the next 20 years. That's a lot of homes. Yeah, it's loads. I don't know how many, but it's, it's a lot of homes. Well, I learned a bit of a, a sad story, actually, um, that the world's oldest known spider died this week. 
Um, she was a female trapdoor tarantula living in Australia, and she reached the grand old age of 43, which was a, a massive world record by a long way. Um, we know about her because she's been tracked by researchers, uh, but sadly, she died of a wasp sting. That's a sad... Imagine how long she could have been going if it hadn't been a wasp. That's a sad way to go, isn't it? R.I.P. Spidey. Was that her name, Spidey? Um, I don't think she had a name. Oh, but it'd be an unoriginal that's... name. Wouldn't it? <laughs> 43 years and not even been named. That is, that's also as, as, as depressing as dying. <laughs> way to bring us down, Matt. The thankless life of a trapdoor tarantula. All right. First story of this week. Um, it's been Facebook's F8 conference, which is their big kind of annual conference. Um, and we learned quite a lot from them. It's where they kind of bring out their announcements. So there was a bunch of updates to Facebook and Instagram. Lots of chat about privacy, naturally. Um, Oculus Go became globally available. But most importantly, we found out that Facebook is getting into dating. Sorry, dating. dating. I did hear that correct. Yeah. Dating. Yeah. So Facebook is building a dating feature into the Facebook app to help match people looking for romance. Um, so Mark Zuckerberg got on stage and did one of his jaunty, cheery presentations about this. Um, and he said that this was intended for long term relationships, not hookups which I think we can probably interpret as a bit of a jibe at apps like Tinder. Um, and he re- revealed a little bit about how it will work. So basically it's opt-in, thank God. You make a profile and it matches you with potential partners who fit your preferences. Crucially, your dating profile isn't, avail- isn't visible to your Facebook friends and your only suggested matches who are not your friends um, and who are also on the dating service and fit your preferences. See, I'm worried because you know how like suggested friends, or you know if you're on Facebook in front of someone else and your suggested friends come up and it's someone that they know, I just think that this is, you know, going to be like that, right? So it's not anyone in your friends list, but it's going to be people that your friends know and potentially kind of like awkward things. And I wonder if, you know, there's something a little bit kind of a... Uh worrying about that to start mm, with like when you get those suggested friends and it's like you know that estate agent you once met or like yeah um you know your ex from high school yeah it's like these are people i've been avoiding it's why they're not my friends <laughs> yeah i don't know i um, i don't think they gave any details about whether they'll use kind of the mutual friends thing which tinder used, used to do i don't know if it still does i haven't, haven't been on it for a while <laughs> um so yeah, I'm not sure how, exactly how they will match people. Um, we'll have to maybe give it a bit of a go when it comes out. Um, but they did show one thing actually, which was quite interesting. Uh, it's a feature where the kind of dating layer of Facebook was also um, linked with a kind of groups and events element. Um, so you know you have like Facebook groups you can join and if you have like a shared interest or you can say that you're attending an event um, that's related to, to your interests. If you're using the dating feature, the idea they suggested is that you could, you know, maybe find an event near you that you're interested in, see other people who are on Facebook dating who are also interested in that event or who are maybe going and strike up a conversation that way over your mutual interest. That sounds a bit like a hookup <laughs> to me. It doesn't sound like it's a very considered sort of way to, okay, yes, you want to meet people that you potentially have things that you're interested with. But if you're going to, I don't know, a gig and you're just like, oh, I wonder who else is around here that Facebook dating could recommend. It's not like you're going to be uh, striking up some meaningful conversation over the sound of Black Sabbath in the background. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's probably a dating site out there somewhere specifically for Black Sabbath fans. There must be. I I feel like Black Sabbath is quite an accurate one as well, right? Because this is dating not as we know it, but kind of for the core user group, which isn't the same type of, you know, people as Tinder, right? I think what you're trying to say, Matt Reynolds, in a kind of roundabout way, is that this is maybe aimed at an older segment of the population it's than for my apps mom. like Tinder. <laughs> Basically, mum. 
expect to see her on Facebook dating. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to think who might use this. So Zuckerberg said that 200 million people on Facebook list themselves as single. I mean, does anyone still do that? So do that, you have your relationship status on Facebook? That doesn't include people that just don't list their relationship status. Then. No, I think that's the ones that are actually listed as single. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? So that, that is a kind of a clear sing- uh, signal that people are saying, you know, I want you to know about it and I want you to know I'm single. So, you know, that seems a good enough gauge for, for them to kind of kick it off then, I guess. But it does seem that, yeah, you know, this is perhaps a more, ma- a more mature, more grown up dating site. And, you know, maybe, you know... It is kind of more based on solid friendships and shared interests as opposed to things like um, Tinder, Bumble, OkCupid. I mean, especially Tinder has a bit of a reputation for, you know, just kind of swipe, 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 find someone you like the look of. Yeah. I don't know. Um, And I suppose one interesting thing there as well is that Tinder and some other apps are actually based on Facebook data. So, you know, you log in with your Facebook account and that's where it pulls its pictures and interests and mutual friends and things from. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how Facebook's own version of a dating app actually kind of compares. Yeah, I I find this so interesting because I guess on one level, when this was announced, I just thought like, A, that's kind of weird. But B, wow, it's so obvious, right? That Facebook is, you know, such a kind of like powerful, like you said, you know, it powers all these dating apps anyway. It's such a kind of obvious play. But then I was thinking, actually, Facebook's always made this big push on like, um, you know, only accept a friend friend request if you know them in real life. And it's about kind of onlining your offline relationships. And I wonder if this is a little bit more a step, you know, a bit of an abstract step, right? It's about meeting people that aren't your friends. And maybe groups are about, you know, bringing together people that aren't usually together. So it feels like this is a kind of like, um, it feels like facebook's like well, i've connected everyone that's already friends now we need to connect them with people they're not friends with so <laughs> maybe that's like part of that that thinking a step beyond yeah i'd love to know sort of like facebook's sort of data thinking behind this as well because um if you just look at like i think they've had relationship status on there since like it's around sort of 10 years i think roughly um it might even be longer than that but each time that everybody who has um left a relationship or something or changed their status on facebook they would have had a record of that they would have kept like the sort of links that are there maybe not in a really accessible easy way but somewhere that there's this sort of like big graph of the people that have already sort of dated with other people and they they must be able to have like drawn some connections between the likes between previous relationships or ongoing relationships and and the things that people already are sort of what's bringing them together so i think it I think this could be quite successful um, yeah. because they've just got so much to build on already. Yeah, so it's interesting. Obviously, they if anyone can find you a good match, maybe it is Facebook because they have so much data about us all. Um, but that's also the creepy side, right? I mean, especially post the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, no one's exactly thrilled at how Facebook is using or protecting uh, personal data right now. Do you, I mean, do you guys really feel like sharing more intimate data, like your dating preferences with this company that's in the news for all the wrong reasons around data privacy at the moment? I'm kind of creeped out of the idea that Facebook's going to be, you know, oh, it knows you're going on a date. Um, we'll suggest, you know, you go to this local rela- you know, restaurant. We know you both kind of like this food. And then you'll get these kind of restaurants <laughs> that are full of people that have been kind of funneled by Facebook. Oh my God, these I hadn't even places. thought of that. They just feel like maybe they're going to use that, right? Because people are going to be looking, you know, if you go on a date, you need to go somewhere, really, don't you? And, you know, where else, you know, Facebook might be tracking people as they work out where to go and like where it's kind of like um, convenient. It feels like um, a lot of opportunities to sell stuff. Yeah, can you imagine the targeted advertising? Like, it's yeah. a great dress for a date. Look really sexy in this new dress. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> broken up, have some ice cream. Yeah, like... <laughs> hmm, yeah, I mean, 
Zuckerberg in his presentation obviously kind of had concerns on his mind as well. Um, because one thing he did say is, we've designed this with privacy and safety in mind from the beginning. Yeah, I think he ha- I think he has to say that <laughs> yeah. at this point. But he also mentioned as well that this is like part of Facebook's uh, mission to create meaningful connections. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, there's probably not much more meaningful than meeting your partner for life or something. Um, I'm pulling of- a face right now. Yeah, you that that is a that is definitely a phase. Um but it's it's yeah, it's just part of this sort of bigger thing that they're trying to do and it's it's a it's yeah. I think it's a sensible move, but... but I mean let's let's just bring it back to why do we think Facebook is doing this? I mean why launch a dating service? Well, yeah, that's so this is not paid for. This is free. Um you, they haven't said anything about it being paid for, so yeah, I think it's free in the app. Yeah, I mean, my assumption is that, and, and this is you know, pure kind of speculation, not knowing much about this, is that actually, um, you know, dating is kind of like a great source of all this kind of like, you know, extra information. Maybe it gets people to, you know, rather than randomly saying, oh, I like dogs, if you're actively, you want to kind of date with someone, and, and also, you know, there's this huge platform, where there's a bunch of people, I think it incentivizes people to kind of like put more information about them into the platform because there's a reason for it. Well, actually, we need to know where you live to, um, you know, match you up with someone, or we need to know what films you like to match you up. And I think that to me, it seems like it, for people that m- might have only, you know, sketched out a very basic Facebook profile, it's quite a good way of, um, uh, I guess, you know, making them kind of like um, a little bit more kind of like connected and, you know, deeper kind of like members and adding more. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, it seems like there's probably quite a lot of value there for Facebook. Getting people to use Facebook more. Yeah. 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 I guess anything they can do to keep people on the app for longer, keep checking back more often, bringing and, new people on board. And it also also just fills into that sort of bigger goal that they have more for, I think, uh, Facebook Messenger than Facebook itself for being like the app uh, like WeChat where you go for everything, where it's like where it's dating, where it's you you order food, where all, all of your apps in one. So maybe it feeds into that sort of ecosystem a little bit as well. well it's interesting, isn't it? Because I wonder, it feels like, um, is it, yeah, WeChat's an interesting example because it feels like a lot of apps have the kind of like, we do one thing and we do it really well. Tinder, you know, finds you someone to hook up with or whatever and that's all it does. And I wonder, you know, is it kind of a bit weird? Like, because you spend a lot of time on your Facebook profile where someone comes over and goes, oh, you've got a dating thing. And, you know, I wonder how they'll kind of like differentiate between the two and how, you know, will it be a single login and just a different tab? I think it is, from the presentation, it very much looked like they were integrating this under the Facebook app. So where you've got, you know, Facebook and Facebook owns WhatsApp and Facebook owns Instagram, but they still have very much their own identities and their separate apps that you open. Um, And Facebook Messenger, maybe it'll be linked in there somehow. But it, it did sound like they're very much introducing this as under the Facebook app, there will now be a dating opt in option. I, I, that sounds like a recipe for disaster because at least you can delete <laughs> Tinder and like it not be open, right? But you open Facebook for all kinds of different things. And the fact that dating is kind of like brought into that, I think, you know, it, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Well, we'll have to give it a go. Um, let us know if you'd consider using a Facebook dating service. Tweet us on at Wired UK. Be interested to hear your thoughts either way. Is this a great idea? Is it a terrible idea? And moving on to our next story, speaking of Facebook and creepy overreaching uses of personal data, Matt? I haven't done anything. That makes me sound like (laughs) I've done something wrong. But no, the story is that uh, Cambridge Analytica, the the other partner in this sort of big Facebook uh, data scandal, um, which has raised so many privacy questions and uh, data protection questions recently, um, has announced that it is immediately shutting down. So this was a a statement that was issued. um, It was fairly late in in the UK. I think it was like 7 or 8 p.m. um, So sort of crossing over into sort of middle of the day in the US as well. But uh, Cambridge 
Analytica and SEL Elections, um, which is SEL Elections is the parent company of the UK-based Cambridge Analytica, uh, put out a statement saying that they are shutting down immediately and are liquidating all of the business. What does that mean, li- they're liquidating the business? So that basically means that the company will cease to exist any longer. Yeah, it is no more. There, there will be no more Cambridge Analytica or SEL elections. Um, and the reasons why they've done this is, uh, it's probably sort of twofold. So they, um, when the whole Facebook um, harvesting data sort of scandal arose, they commissioned a, a judge in this country who is a Queen's counsel called Julian Mallins to uh, conduct an independent report. Um, and this report has now been finalised and, and finished. Um, and uh, Julian Mallins, who conducted the report, said, I had full access to all members of staff and documents in preparation of my report. My findings are entire entirely reflect the amazement of staff on watching the television programmes and reading the sensationalistic reporting that any of these media outlets could have been talking about the company for which they worked. Nothing of what they ha- they heard or resonated with, they actually did for a living. So they're basically blaming the media response and this scandal blowing up in the press as the reason for the company, go- well, being liquidated. Yeah, so I think in one place they said it was a siege, uh, a media siege, um, and there's been so much stuff um, directed and written about them that their their customers don't want to be involved anymore, um, which yeah. I think is probably a fair reaction to a, for a lot of companies and people that are dealing with Wait, uh, Cambridge Analytica. Isn't it the fact that they misuse personal data to subvert a democratic election? Isn't that the reason and not the the fuss that the media made over it, or is that is that just me being biased? I think it's the pesky pesky media. Yeah, media. Why can't I just do things? <laughs> wrong and no one worry me about it yeah i can imagine you know if a potential customer decides to google cambridge analytica <laughs> right now they might not get the most glowing uh, idea of the, of the company um but it's not over yet right the, because this isn't completely going away no so um there are a few investigations still going on into cambridge analytica um so the uk government and sort of the information commissioner the data protection watchdog uh is conducting investigations into them and they and they've said that the data shouldn't be deleted from uh from cambridge analytica and stuff that they had so they can't sort of use this as a way to sort of hide out from any investigations that are ongoing but also there's a new company and it's called emma data limited and I don't know if this is going to sound familiar in any way, but it is headquarters at the same offices as SEL Elections and run by much of the same management team and investors as Cambridge Analytica. Hmm. So to give, to give you a little rundown, uh, the company, we don't know much about this at the moment. So it's the, the way that we know about this is that in the UK, there are records of all limited companies that are set up and they're sort of freely available on a website called Companies House. And you can just go and search a company name or a person's name. So you could go and search my name and any director. If I'm a director of a company or if I own a company or anything like that, it will come up in a sort of a listing there. Um, so this new company, uh, Emma Data, has... Um, it's one of its directors is Cambridge Analytica's acting CEO, Dr. Alexander Taylor. Uh, Julian Wheatland, uh, who is also a director at uh, SCL, one of the branches of Cambridge Analytica, is a director at the new company. Uh, there's involvement um, from uh, Jennifer and Rebecca Mercer, who um, who Robert Mercer in the US um, created and bankrolled much of Cambridge Analytica. Um, and the company says, or the li- limited details we have about the company says it is to do with data processing, hosting, and related activities. Related activities. That sounds like a wide uh, net to cast. And it's re- registered to the same address that um, the company Cambridge Analytica and SEL are currently listed to. So it seems like the, the Cambridge Analytica team um, 
isn't exactly disappearing from the data business. No, so we don't know what's going to happen to all the staff going on there, but it does seem um, a little coincidental that all the sort of directors and people involved highly with Cambridge Analytica and its parent SEL um, are setting up a new company that is in the same address that is basically has a description that is very similar to what Cambridge Analytica was doing. Um, so it could be a move for them to sort of try and re-establish themselves and sort of uh, pick up parts of the business where customers weren't necessarily wanting to be sort of uh, separated from them because Cambridge Analytica was sort of uh, and sort of the big network of companies that are related to it because it's all this big sort of in uh, woven web that is just sort of like different entities doing different things um, a lot of their work they say uh, wasn't around elections and stuff like that they did a lot of stuff for brands they did a lot of stuff for uh, companies looking to promote their uh, adverts and target their businesses and stuff like that in different ways so maybe this is just a way to uh, try and shed some of the negative publicity that they've had around the election related stuff and move into or just focus on the other industries that they um, were already working in. And we don't know exactly what Emma Data is going to do yet. As we've said, you know, data processing, hosting, related activities, those are very broad terms and they could apply to many different fields and many different types of data. So I suppose we'll just have to wait and see how this story develops. Yeah, it could be nothing at all like Cambridge Analytica is doing. But I think you would probably have to be very um, positive in your outlook to think that. I think they should have called ourselves nothing to see here, really good data call or something like that. I think that Emma Data is quite like sinister. What do you think it stands for? Because the, so the Emma in Emma Data is E M E R. I was thinking like emergency. Yeah, I was emerging? wondering that. It might be yeah. emerditor. Emerditor. <laughs> 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 it almost definitely isn't that. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, I'm going to call them emerditor from em- now on. <laughs> Well, watch this space. We'll update if there are any major developments. Um, Now, moving on to our next story. Um, It's not often that we have a positive climate change story, but Matt Reynolds, you're suggesting that this might be one? We have sorted out the climate change issue. We can go home. And you know the best news? We don't have to do anything about it because it's fixing itself. Wow, great. Okay, bye. Yeah, let's pack up. Okay, so, so it's not quite like that. But so basically, I've been looking into this kind of new movement that is called um, new conservation or sometimes it's called eco modernism. And it has like quite a lot of fairly high profile, um, you know, people behind it. You know, Steven Pinker, the guy that's always saying like the world's great. Um, someone called Ted Nordhaus, who's been you know, be- really big environmental policy. James Hansen, a really well respected um, conservationist. And now there's a new paper uh, that comes from a guy called Eric Sanderson, who works at a, a place called the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is a really kind of big, you know, fairly traditional, you know, international conservation agency. Their argument is this, right? So population growth has kind of like been declining since the 1960s, right? Because as people, as the world develops, people have less babies because you don't need to have children to work the farm and, you know, mortality is kind of like lower. So we reckon that by 2100, the uh, population is going to level out at around 9 billion. And we're, we're pretty sure that's that's going to happen. Um, at the same time, uh, and this is Sanson's prediction, is that economic growth is going to continue to lift, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And that's saying, you know, that, that kind of like Stephen Pinker has talked a lot about that, frankly capitalism has lifted hundreds of million people out of poverty and you know it's going to continue to do that at an increasing rate over the next hundred years and third factor going on here is that by uh, 2100 between 55 and 90 percent of the world's population is going to live in towns and cities so what what does population have to do necessarily with climate change yeah this is the thing none of this is to do with conservation basically here's their argument right um urbanization 
uh, which you know has tended to go hand in hand with economic growth, has traditionally been seen as um, you know being bad for the environment. Right? You get richer, you consume more, you, you eat more meat, and all of that is really bad for the environment. However, the kind of like growing argument is is actually that urbanization might be good. So people that live in more densely populated areas, um, you know, are more efficient from a kind of like a planning point of view. So they share infrastructure like sanitation, water supply hospitals and schools um you know they travel much you know uh, you know less far in terms of distance and they have shared transportation um so it lowers the environmental uh, impact uh, of trans- transportation uh, per person it's something like um if you take someone in new york city that lives in the city compared to someone that lives in um rural america they use 74 percent less water 35 percent less electricity and they produce something like 45 percent less weight so the idea is urban living is or can be ecologically much much better Right, so we should all just move to London. Yeah, so yeah, that's the thing. So I'm not entirely convinced by this, right? Um, so yeah, that's that's one level. But there are, there are a couple of things going on here. On on one hand, although that argument might be true, um, just because we think we're living in a kind of like a cleaner city and we're doing all these things great, um, there's this problem that we kind of like... Um, a lot of our ecological footprint that comes from consuming more and being more wealthy doesn't affect you in the city, right? But it affects someone way over the other side of the planet. So we know that when people get richer, they eat a lot more meat and they eat a lot more processed food, right? That's you know, really kind of like a clear, clear trend. Turns out that that uses so much water. So essentially, you could say, well, actually, we're living really green in the city. and We've got electric cars and, you know, everyone uses a tube. But actually, if more people are eating meat and that's taking up land in Argentina or wherever... Um, and all those reasons, or if people are using iPhones and buying more technology, and that's using cobalt, you know, taken out of a mine in Congo, it doesn't really solve those problems, does and it? And we, we send waste around the world as well, don't we? Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the thing. So although we might kind of like be producing waste on the whole, there's kind of the sense that this argument is a bit like saying, well, things are kind of better in the Western world and in London and New York, and we can live more efficiently here. Does that mean we've fixed everything? So it sounds like it's not necessarily the movement of people or the population numbers that will create this beautiful environmental utopia, but that we do actually have to make some changes to the ways we live as well. Yeah, exactly. And so, th- so there are some kind of like things that we could do um, to to change it. And um, you know, th- there are kind of like ways that we're living. And I know Matt, you've been kind of like thinking about uh, you know ways that actually could like you know help us reduce our footprint. Yeah, but. Just to jump back one second, because I have a question. Um, how, like, this this work they're doing in this sort of movement, is it, a, is it a fringe thing, or is it something that is actually holds some sort of scientific, um, um, what's the word, uh, validation, credence? Uh, yeah, so that's the interesting thing. So basically, um, it depends on who you speak to. It's certainly got some really kind of, like, big names in the environmental movement behind it, and not just, you know, the kind of, like, people that you might expect. It's kind of, like, getting kind of, you know, real traction. And I think that... In terms of scientific validation, all that stuff I said about population, about increasing urbanisation, about, um, you know, uh, increasing kind of economic prosperity and that lifting people out of poverty, that's all pretty true, right? We, we, we can be pretty certain that these um, demographic trends are, you know, in the long run going, you know, going really well. The, the question is, like Vicky says, how do you translate that into, um, you know, taking the kind of like pressure off the environment? And I think that's the thing. So basically, there's this idea, we've kind of accepted that maybe there's this opportunity, but more traditional conservationists still think that, look, if everyone's getting richer and we all want to drive a car and we all want to eat meat and, and whatever, then we just can't sustain it, right? We can't have a planet of 9 billion, um, you know, middle class or even slightly affluent people. 
Yeah, it does. I have to say, it does all sound a bit idealistic to me. Like, and it may be like a bit of an excuse as well. Like, it's easy to say, like, oh, just sit back, the world will sort itself out in by 2100, which is what, 80 years away? Yeah, that's not long in, in kind of climate change terms or, you know. Um, those kind of big scale environmental terms. So I don't know, is there is there a concern that this could just be used to kind of gloss over the actual truth that we need to be cutting back on emissions and we need to be um, investing more in renewable energy sources and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it could be, but there are some really good things that technology is doing for the environment at the moment. And sort of, okay, it's probably too late that we've we've sort of maybe passed a, a climate change point where um, things have become really bad that now we actually need to act. But there are sort of going forward, some of the technology that we have been developing is actually making uh, differences. So there are efforts around the world to sort of capture water from the air and uh, turn it into sort of fresh drinking water, which means that um, less brine and uh, pollution are sort of poured back into the sea. Um, um, electric vehicles, we mentioned them a couple of times, but these are obviously a good thing in terms of like reducing the amount of emissions that are out there. So, for instance, in China, there's a lot of electric buses at the moment, and sort of um, their fleet has been growing really big over there. And for some analysis, has said that for every 1,000 battery power buses that are on the road, uh, around 500 barrels of diesel fuel will be displaced from the market. So that's that's a pretty good thing. Like that's a mass transport thing that is obviously can work in cities as well. And um, we've talked about it on the podcast a bit before, but clean meat creating sort of meat that isn't uh isn't from animals and is sort of naturally grown and, and created um obviously uses less um pollutants and everything than uh, than farming um and also things like the shared economy if people are using um more uh, vehicles for ride sharing and sort of uh sharing um flats and places more often then there's going to be slightly less uh rubbish and everything that is produced and another thing like smarter homes we are sort of using energy efficient meters and and reducing um what we are what all the pollute pollutants and waste that we're putting out there so things are like as i guess as humans and humanity we are slowly getting better at some of these things but especially in cities but it's a slow process yeah i mean all those things are great but i think when these you know obviously we love technology um, and it does hold great promise in many areas to make our world a better place. But I think often in conversations around, especially around the environment, unfortunately, it, it becomes politics, doesn't it? And it often economics tends to trump environmentalism when it comes to some of these decisions. So although those technologies exist or are being worked on, I think it's probably going to take, I mean, longer than 80 years to see them widespread and, and used such that we don't have to worry about climate change at all. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really it's really hard to change a giant city that already exists. If you look at London or Tokyo or uh, any of a g- global giant city, you can't really easily change the whole infrastructure. So everybody is using more environmentally friendly transport or something like that. It doesn't happen overnight. That those are long term projects that take twenty, thirty, forty years, if not more, to sort of develop. And like, yeah, we we are doing good things, but it's probably oh, I'm going to be really gloomy it's probably too late for <laughs> yeah so it, it's kind of interesting so on the bright side there are some examples of this being done quite well so there's a city that is is kind of like being built uh, it's about 100 kilometers southwest of beijing and um, it's basically kind of like an overflow city for beijing and actually it's in an area that is china's like biggest freshwater wetland i think so it's a very like um delicate area and actually the way they're kind of like they're designing the city at the minute they're like they're planting something like 15 million trees there um, and actually, it's, it, it looks, you know, on the surface of it, it's going to be kind of 
of like quite an ecologically um, sustainable way of designing a city. They're kind of they're looking at moving kind of millions of people there eventually. But actually, because one part of this is well, how do we design these cities of the future? Remember what I said? You know, the fact of the day. This is talking about building cities, like you know, every decade, and how are we going to build that? On the other hand, so that's good, right? So there are examples um, of, of these cities being built in a really good way, and that's really useful, right? Because a huge amount of this population growth is happening in Southeast Asia, so you know, getting on the, the city building there is a really good idea. On the other hand, when we talk about, well, you know, what can uh, driverless cars do? What can like electric vehicles do? That's all very well. But I think the problem is, is you've got to think that might say reduce, our, I don't know, say, you know, it might reduce our environmental footprint in a big city by like 2%, right? Because we become a little bit more efficient or something. You, you know, you look at that at the other end of the, tre- the, uh, the trend and what you've got is that people that were subsistence farmers and basically had a v- almost no um, environmental footprint are now going to start, um, you know, eating meat and they're going to start moving into cities and they're going to start living in a way that involves kind of like rapid kind of like consumption because that's where the trends are going. And we're talking about an increase in consumption of huge orders, right? So the 2% that you took off of people in the developed world becomes absolutely swamped by, you know, this increase in development. And the problem is, is this becomes a kind of like a um, a kind of like a global pr- problem, right? Because let's face it, that economic growth is, is, is not about what we do in London. It's about well how do these cities develop and what can we say can we say well actually we don't think people in the developing world should be affluent and eat meat and stuff because that is the the major change that is going to happen so it's kind of like do we give up some of the things that we think we have a right to because we think that other people should develop as we do or do you not let the world kind of develop at that pace so i think that it's it's, it's problematic because you look at where the growth is happening and us taking off a little bit of our consumption can't change that the overall dynamic So I guess what we've concluded in our little discussion there is that uh, climate change is still a thing. It is still a thing. So (laughs) I I thought we'd fixed it and it turns out that it's still a massive problem. Don't stop recycling anytime soon. Okay, well, I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. All that's left is for me to remind you all about our special offer for Wired podcast listeners. Um, This is to subscribe to our print magazine where you get three issues for £1 and free access to our digital edition on Android and iOS and free delivery. Unfortunately, the offer is only available in the UK. Now, to claim it, just visit wired.u.com. Sorry, I, I made it's it. Tricky. <laughs> I did it right. It's tricky. Okay. To claim it, visit wired.uk slash podcast offer. Don't type www. Don't type wired.co.uk. Just wired.uk forward slash podcast offer, all as one word. And it's a great deal. Free free issues for a pound. And like, I think hundreds of people have taken up a, us, up, us up on it so far. So thank you very much for. Yeah. And let us know how you're finding it, new subscribers. That'd be great. Um, anyway, that's enough for today. We'll we'll speak to you again next week. <laughs> yeah, it works. Uh, bye, bye for now. Bye. bye.